Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Welcome back to our study in the book of 1 Kings. For the past few weeks, we've been given the privilege to go behind the scenes in the construction of Solomon's temple. Well, today we're finally going to see it finished and the celebration that ensues. Look at verse 48 with me. Solomon also made all the furniture that was in the house of the Lord, the golden altar and the golden table which was set the bread of the presence. And the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right hand, five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, and the flowers and the lamps and the tongs of gold. Also the cups, the shears, the bowls, the ladles, and the firepans, and the hinges both for the doors of the inner house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the house that is in the main room of gold. So all that the work that King Solomon performed, the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the offerings vowed by his father David, the silver and the gold and the utensils, and he put them in the treasuries in the house of the Lord. We have discovered in 1 Kings 7 an obvious detail, even to the casual reader, and that is the delight in detail. That detail, however, can be deceptive. We may think as we plod through the various descriptions line by line that the writer has simply put intricate blueprints into semi-understandable style. Why such an intricate description? Many Bible readers at least don't seem to have the patience for it. Isn't it just a tad bit tedious? You may wonder why you should even care how many pomegranates are on the top of the pillar or how many baths those basins contain. Why do we need the inventories of the bronze and gold artifacts? But these questions are all wrong-headed. Does the writer find it laborious and tedious? That is the proper question. And the answer is, obviously not, or he would not have gone into such detail. I hope I've shown you that there are several different New Testament pictures and applications that are to be drawn from the items and also the structure of the temple. These were the furnishings of the royal house of the one who rules over everything. And it's amazing to me to see how many of those things are applied in various ways to Jesus Christ. All that this house represents finds its fulfillment in him. We are told in verse 48 that Solomon made all the furniture in the house of the Lord. Now, I don't think this means that Solomon personally sat down on the living room floor and tried to follow those maddening instructions where you are commanded to put Dow A into whole C. Have you ever tried to do that? It is always a test of my sanctification. Plus, they always tend to send me way too much hardware because I always have stuff that's left over. Most likely, verse 48 means that Solomon had the furniture of the temple made. As I've been saying, we are now in the temple of the Lord. And so you have to wonder, is our soul also well furnished? If so, then let's use the furniture that God has given us, making it part of our everyday life. When life seems to be falling apart, you're not sure how much longer you can stand. Remember, 
that Jesus is the pillar of your strength. When all around you seems dark and foreboding, take comfort in the fact that you have the light of God's word to navigate through any turbulent waters. When you are defeated by sin and feeling so unworthy that you doubt there is anything you can do for God, remember it is the blood of Christ that purifies you from all sin. And in the same way that Solomon finished that temple, in a much greater way, we have the unfailing promise this morning that he who began a good work in you, he will be the one who will be faithful to complete it. Let me say, if you are not a believer this morning, then your life is never going to be furnished the way that God intended. And it doesn't matter where you live or what kind of car you drive, or how fat your retirement portfolio is. There is a reason why there is a long list of movie, sport, and music stars who have seemingly had everything and achieved everything that is supposed to make you happy. And yet many of them are on their fifth marriage, and many just end their lives in total despair. I've lived long enough to realize that God's ways are the only ways that work. Also in verse 48, we are told of the bread of the presence. The bread symbolized the covenant between the Lord and Israel and should also remind us of the one who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We are then told in verse 49 there were golden lampstands. One commentator I read concludes that these lampstands served three different purposes. One, it was functional for it gave light to an otherwise dark place. Two, it was aesthetic, lending glory and beauty to the holy place for which there is a proper and continuing need. And three, it was symbolic, conveying the concept of life through both the tree of life and light. We know that every well-furnished home needs light. The Solomon's temple was illuminated by the light from ten golden lampstands. Now you may recall that the tabernacle in the wilderness had only one lampstand. But the temple is so much bigger, Solomon installed five lampstands along each wall, filling the sanctuary with light. The function was symbolic as well as practical. As Israel's priests entered the holy house of God, the golden lampstand reminded them of the lights that God put in the heavens when he created the world. It also reminded them that God is the source of all light. The Lord is my light and salvation, King David wrote, and in his light we see light. In other words, God is the light that illuminates every other source of light in the entire universe whether physical or spiritual. Or in the words of C.S. Lewis, I believe in Christianity the same way I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Now today we see the light of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who said that he was the bread of life also said that he was the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the true light who enlightens everyone. He is the light that has come into our dark world for our salvation. 
And when we put our trust in Him, the light of God will begin to illuminate every dark corner of our lives. Jesus gives us the light that shows us the truth, uncovers our sin, and reveals the right path for us to take in life. And He also makes us to shine in a very dark world. We are then told in verse 51, So all the work that King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished. That English word finished has appeared eight times in 1 Kings. In five places, finished represents the Hebrew word that was used of God when he finished his creation. In two places, it was a Hebrew word that had the sense of completeness as in the perfection of what had been finished. But in this place, it's a different word. It has a sense of peace and wholeness. It is the verb form of the word shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace and resonates with Solomon's own name. So we could rightly say that the completion of this house represented the peace of the kingdom of God and of his king. Second, we need to see that the house of peace was the outcome of the reign of King David. And although David had not been permitted to build this house because he was not a king of peace, the victories that David had won prepared for this peace and the house that embodied it. The connection between that house that Solomon built and furnished so extravagantly described in these chapters and King David points us to a deeper kind of connection. And what is that? The house of the Lord represented the promise that God had made to David. Indeed, at one level, this house is what was promised. But at a deeper level, however, the house represented the promised kingdom of peace where the one who rules over all things will bring all things under the rule of this king. The house that Solomon built was not the reality to which it pointed. Eventually, the king who built this house failed. And to the horror of the people who understand anything of its significance, the house itself was completely destroyed. That account specifically will note the destruction of the bronze pillars, the stands, and the bronze sea, along with the other objects that we have been reading about. Despite that, the house of the Lord in Jerusalem represented the truth about everything. God is the creator of all things and he will establish the kingdom of his son forever. In numerous ways, this house points us to Jesus Christ, who once again is the truth about everything. We are told in Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Sadly, in due course, King Solomon, like his father David, proved inadequate for the task represented by these buildings. Those buildings are going to be destroyed. And the prophets would begin to speak of a new day, a new king, and a new building project. 
Listen to the prophet Zechariah. Long after Solomon's buildings were no more, he said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. Who is he talking about there? Jesus Christ is the promised building king. For it was he who said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But really, the greatest building project of all is the calling of people from all nations together into one body. So it will be in the last of days when Jesus comes into his kingdom and he takes us home to be with God forever. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I say that I went to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. One day, Jesus is going to come and take us to the Father's house. And when we arrive, we're going to discover He has prepared a place that is absolutely perfect for each one of us. So wherever we happen to stay and live in the meantime, we should always remember that we are not home yet, but we are on our way to the best home of all, Thus the soul of every believer really is like that temple, sacred space. It is a place where God does his interior decorating in the lives of his people. As we see the furniture of Solomon's temple, therefore, and understand its true spiritual meaning, we also see how God, too, wants to furnish each of our lives with his grace. If you allow me a quick rabbit trail before we get into chapter 8. In 1 Chronicles 29.2, we read that David not only gathered gold, silver, and brass for the temple, but he also gathered iron. Yet, in the construction of the temple and its utensils, there is no mention of iron whatsoever. Why in the world would I draw our attention to that? There are times in our lives when we will make a great effort to do something as unto the Lord. But for one reason or another, it will never be used. You know what? That's okay. Our job is to simply do the best we can and present it to the Lord. And the way he wants to use it or not use it is completely and totally up to him. Our part is to rejoice in his wisdom, his timing, and his plan, and in so doing, we will be wonderfully free. I threw that in, no extra charge. Chapter 8, look at verse 1 with me. And Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel, to King Solomon Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, that is Zion. So all the men of Israel assembled themselves before King Solomon at the feast in the, 11th, in the month of Ethanim, that is the seventh month. 
Chapter 8 is really one of the most theologically significant texts in the entire book of 1 Kings. Here we encounter more than just the pomp, ceremony, and ritual associated with major building dedications. Later we're going to cover Solomon's prayer for the temple and the people, which really, after the glorification of God, is what the temple should have been all about. They were assembled before King Solomon in Jerusalem in the presence of God's chosen king in the royal city. Picture the scene. Finally, you have God's people gathered to God's rightful king. Likewise, we come together this morning because we also have been summoned into the presence of an even greater king. But on that day, without question and without doubt, it had to be the most extraordinary worship service that any of them had ever witnessed. Indeed, it may have been the most awesome, spine-tingling, goose-bump-inducing worship that any group of human beings have ever offered to the living God. Try to imagine the scene as it is described for us in 2 Chronicles 5. For an entire week, the whole nation of Israel had gathered around the Mount of God in Zion. And as the, the, the celebration came to its climax, King Solomon appeared in all of his glory, and with him the leaders of the people. And as the people watched, myriads of priests came streaming out of the temple. Now these men have consecrated themselves to the service of God by washing in that great bronze basin that stood near the holy place known as the sea and by dressing and wearing fine linen. Singers in the Levitical choir and various instrumentalists stood outside the temple with their harps and lyres and cymbals, not to mention a hundred and twenty trumpets. It was the orchestra of the living God. Now on cue, all the musicians burst into praise. And with one voice, they offered a melody of thanksgiving to God. Their musical text was a famous refrain from King David when he said, For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. And we're going to find out that as the people worship, God's glory came down and filled Solomon's temple. At the center of this liturgical extravaganza was the only thing, or the only one, that could be worthy of so much praise, and that was the holy presence of the living God. The Ark of the Covenant was finally coming home to the house of God. With the ark, the temple would become what Solomon had built it to become, and not just a beautiful building, but the center of the people's worship and the symbolic earthly dwelling place for the true and the living God. Now, the same events are described a little less dramatically for us in 1 Kings 8. Here we do not read about the singing psalms or the blowing trumpets, but we do read about the ark of God's holy covenant. And therefore we learn about the character of God and what it means to have a relationship with him by faith. Israel enjoyed initially this kind of leadership under Solomon with wonderful results. 
According to verse 2, all the men of Israel assemble for the worship of God. But verse 5 includes the women and children. And we are told that it included all the congregation of Israel. And that is how it should be. For God deserves everyone's praise. He is the maker of the entire universe and the Lord of all grace. Therefore, everyone should praise him. Men and women, young and old, rich and poor, natives and foreigners, there is not one single person who should not give praise to God. Why? Because he is the Lord. And be sure of one thing. One day, everyone is going to bow. Listen how Philippians 2.9 puts it. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name, which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. According to that scripture, a day is coming when all those in heaven, earth, and hell will bow their knees to Jesus Christ. That means that it's not a question if they will bow their knees, but only when and how they will do it. Will they freely do it on earth, or will they do it from the vantage point in hell? And so if you haven't done that yet today, in the words of the Apostle Paul, I beg and implore you to come to him before it's too late. Notice that verse 2 says, They came to him in the seventh month. Solomon finished building the temple in the eighth month of the previous year. This celebration did not take place, though, until 11 months later. Why is that? No one is really sure. But apparently Solomon scheduled the dedication of the temple to coincide with the Feast of the Tabernacles held in the seventh month where there would be already be a general assembly of the people in Jerusalem. That would also be a jubilee, jubilee year, so it was especially appropriate. Verse 3, please. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy utensils which were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who gathered together to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. The ark was last featured in a big way in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when King David had it brought up from Baal Judah to the city of David. What an occasion that was. The significance of what David did was huge. Bringing the ark of the covenant of the Lord into the city of David was David's acknowledgement and proclamation that the true king in David's kingdom was really not him, but the Lord. We must not miss the historic significance of this moment. Since the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with the people of Israel had been captured by the Philistines over a hundred years earlier, 
The ark had not been in its proper place in the tabernacle. It had lain in obscurity for 70 years in the house of Abinadab until, Ava, until David brought it up from there. And then it had been in the tent that David provided for at least another 30 years. So for the first time in over 100 years, the ark and the tabernacle have been brought together. We are then told that an innumerable number of sheep and oxen were sacrificed for this occasion. These sacrifices were offered with thanksgiving to God and presumably also as an atonement for their sin, which if you think about it, was only proper. Why? Because the people are now in the presence of God signified by the Ark of the Covenant. And in order for an unholy people to stand in the presence of a holy God, atonement must be made for their sins. And since there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, this atonement had to be paid in blood. In this case, as animals serving as substitutes for the people of God. Now, some atheists today accuse God of being a bloodthirsty tyrant. But if you think about it, these animals belong to God because they were made by Him. And in their deaths, they actually glorified their Creator. Only an infinitely worthy deity could ever demand such a costly sacrifice, but demanded He did. So the people reverently and thankfully offered Him countless sacrifices paid in blood. The Day of Atonement was really to prepare the, God's people for the Savior that would one day come. The prophet said that one day a Savior would come to make the perfect sacrifice that God demanded by offering His life as one atonement for many sinners. But instead of making countless sacrifices, the Savior would pay for all of the sins in one single day. Jesus made that saving sacrifice on the cross at Calvary. As the scripture says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. This is the gospel of our salvation, in which God provides the sacrifice that He demands. Jesus, the Son of God, has offered Himself as the atonement for our sin. And so as far as our salvation is concerned, no further sacrifice is ever needed. Since God's demand has been fully satisfied through the cross, there is no further sacrifice that we must or even can make for our sins. All that is left for us to do is to give back to God the offering of our lives and our praises. The sacrifices of our thanksgiving should be like the sacrifice of Solomon for the Ark of the Covenant in that they should be more than anyone could ever count. Now why would I say that? If God has the right to demand any sacrifice, then we should sing to him countless hymns and songs of praise, offer him countless prayers of thanksgiving, and render to him countless gifts of money for kingdom work, and serve him with countless deeds of love and mercy. As we assemble as God's people this morning to enjoy the fulfillment of God's promises, we still must be very careful. 
Why? Because if you haven't done this, atonement has to be made for your sin. However, unlike King Solomon's church, we don't do it. Because it has been done once and for all for us by our king. His death on the cross is the full and perfect sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. Only so is it possible this morning for us to gather as the church of Christ. I read a true story that illustrates the kind of sacrifice that God calls us to make in his service. A little boy's sister needed a blood transfusion. She was suffering from the same disease that the boy himself had survived two years earlier. The doctor explained that her only chance for recovery was to receive a blood transfusion from someone else who had conquered the same disease. And since the two children had the same very rare blood type, her brother was the ideal donor. Would you give your blood to your sister, the doctor asked. Johnny hesitated at first, but with his lower lip trembling, finally he said, for my sister, sure. Soon the children were wheeled into the hospital room, Mary pale and thin, and Johnny robust and healthy. Neither one of them spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. His smile faded as a nurse inserted the needle into his arm, and he watched the blood flow through the tube. When the ordeal was almost over, Johnny's shaky voice broke the silence. Doctor, he said, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny had hesitated before agreeing to donate his blood. He thought the doctor was asking for all of it. Still, out of his love for his sister, he was willing to give it. You know, someday God may demand our lifeblood in his service. And if he does so, he would certainly deserve it. After all, his son has given his lifeblood for each of us this morning. Yet thankfully, most of the sacrifices God will ask us to offer are much smaller. And things like our love, worship, time, money, comfort, dreams, and desires. So as we finish up this morning, we should give Jesus all this and so much more. Until eventually, we just lose track of all the sacrifices we have made for the Savior who has given up everything for us. Perhaps eventually we will get to the place in life that David Livingston finally reached. After making a life of costly sacrifices, the famous missionary and explorer told an audience at Cambridge University, he said, I really never made a sacrifice. We ought not even to talk about sacrifice when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself up for us. We should praise him this morning. In the days of Solomon, God was present at the Ark of the Covenant. Now he is present with us in the person of his Son and the power of his Holy Spirit. Jesus said that any time even two or three people are gathered together in my name, there I will be in their midst. Therefore, every time we worship, we experience something more amazing than the very Ark of the Covenant, and that is the presence of God Almighty. This is one of the reasons why public worship is such a priority for us. For just as Solomon summoned the nation of Israel to a mountaintop, we too have been invited to come and meet 
every week with the living God. Now let's leave for a purposing to offer to him the sacrifice that he deserves. <clears throat> Father, I think of the fact that the temple was finished, and I know that you've promised to finish that good work. But I will admit sometimes, Lord, that that finishing line seems so far away. And I see there's so much work you still need to do in my life. But you have done so much work already. And so I pray, Father, for everyone within the sound of my voice, that wherever they are, with you, or not with you for that matter, that this would be the day that we cannot get away from, that we would once again offer ourselves up to you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you, which is our just our reasonable service. And if someone does not know you, O oh God, I pray that your word would ring in their ears throughout this week, and they would think, Lord, that there is a time when every life ends. <laughs> Even yesterday, I wonder how many people woke up thinking, this is going to be my last day on earth. I doubt very many of them. But I join with Jonathan also in praying for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray, God, that this thing could be ended as soon as possible and with the least amount of lives that have to be lost. Be with your people, Lord, and I pray that you would just gather your church together in unity as we pray for Israel, Lord. Father, I just pray that you'd bring us back this time next week, cause us to think about you all week, Lord, and draw us to yourself. We ask in your name. Amen.